Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. We're making a new Guardian podcast to keep you up to date during the federal election campaign. It's called Campaign Catch-Up and it's hosted by me, Jane Lee, together with Catherine Murphy and the rest of the politics team at Guardian Australia. Each day you'll hear the top stories and analysis from the team on what it all means. Even if people think you're a really nasty piece of work, you won't care if your objective is served. We seem to be having these problems repeatedly and there doesn't seem to be any lessons learnt from when we've previously been unprepared. It'll be out at 4pm every day of the campaign. Hear it on Full Story or search for Campaign Catch-Up wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Guardian. Australians broadly, but Queenslanders especially, were prepared for a period to give Scott Morrison the benefit of the doubt. Uh, I think that changed really quickly. And the contrast between the two leaders is becoming better and better for us with each passing day. Hello, lovely Potters. It's Catherine Murphy and you're on Australian Politics. And we literally are five minutes to midnight now. A federal election will be called at some point over this present weekend. I hope you're well hydrated and you've got your snacks packed. Uh, in the remaining time uh, of the, in this past week, I just wanted to catch up with Jim Chalmers, who is Labor's shadow treasurer, and he's also uh, one of the most senior Labor MPs, Queensland-based Labor MPs, as well as uh, nutting through some portfolio stuff and uh, projecting ahead in terms of what conundrums might be on his desk in the event that Labor ends up winning this contest, I wanted to touch base about Queensland and Labor's fortunes in that state. It it literally is a make or break state, I think, for Labor at this coming contest. So we're going to start there and uh, we'll then pivot out to a whole lot more. Listen up. Jim Chalmers, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Catherine. Good to be back. Now, look, given uh, the election could be hours, could be days. Could be, yeah. Minutes away. Minutes, hard to know. And just for clarity, we're recording early in the week. Jim uh, is in Canberra or was in Canberra to do his uh, National Press Club speech, which is a traditional reply after the budget. But anyway, the point of me saying the campaign you know, is imminent, is obviously the campaign's imminent because I want to start there and I want to start with Queensland. We'll get to the portfolio and all kinds of thorny questions. But, look, it's a truism in Australian politics that uh, elections are won and lost in Queensland for a reason. 
there's a hell of a lot of seats in the state. And I know you have done a lot of work since 2019 to try and work out what went wrong there, listening, how you can redux the message, how you can reconnect with communities. So tell me, what is it like on your home turf at the moment? I feel like we're doing well in Queensland, um, but we have to do really well in Queensland. Um, There's a lot of seats in Queensland that have got very big margins, seats that we have traditionally targeted. So people look at polls and they see a swing to Labor in Queensland, which I, you know, it feels like that on the ground. Yeah. But it needs to be quite a swing to secure um, seats. And so I feel like we have to, we always have to work twice as hard for every vote in Queensland. You know, I'm born and bred. I've always understood it's traditionally at the federal level been harder for Labor in Queensland, so we have to work harder. But I feel like the door is ajar because people are working Scott Morrison out. And I think objectively, you know, he has treated Queensland shabbily during the pandemic and during the floods. And I think people are working that out. They don't like the fact that he seems to fly in, bag Anastasia Palaszczuk and then fly off again. Uh, So they feel dudded. They feel taken for granted. They feel like he's turned his back on us when we needed him most and gone missing. And so I think that invites a bit of a reconsideration of who they might support. I don't think that decision is in the final stages yet. You know, I think there's a lot more work for us to do. And it's, it's kind of you to acknowledge that I spend a huge amount of time, obviously, not just because I'm from there, thinking about Queensland, not just in a political sense, but in an economic sense, in an industrial sense. Yeah. Because I feel like if the national economy is going to recover really strongly, then Queensland needs to be a really big part of that story. And so as the country's eyes, you know, gaze is fixed on Queensland, I want it to be more than a political question. You know, there's, a, there's an economic thing there too. And that's why I've done 60, six zero visits to 29 regional cities and towns in Queensland just this term alone for that reason. Mm. And in terms of, you know, you're right to point out the margins and, you know, people are always surprised by it. I think they just haven't wrapped their heads around it that you could get a a positive swing in Queensland of 5% and have a gain of one seat. It's sort of like the, you know, the curse of 2019 has left you in a difficult position. Do you think there is a pathway to victory for Labor in this contest if your net gain in Queensland is one or none? Yes, but a very difficult one. It's hard to see us winning an election without winning seats in Queensland, but perhaps not entirely impossible. The other important thing to acknowledge about Queensland is it's nowhere near homogenous. You know, the, yeah. the southeast corner looks yeah. a lot like seats in New South Wales and Victoria. Uh, the regions are not even necessarily similar. Central Queensland, North Queensland, Far North Queensland, the industrial base is different. All of those things are different. So people want to simplify Queensland for understandable reasons, but there's more complexity in the electoral politics than people give credit for. And so, you know, how we perform in the suburbs of Australia will matter in yeah. the suburbs of Brisbane, uh, how we perform in the regions, etc. And so it's a more complex thing, but I think overall, we know it's hard there. We know it's harder to win without winning some seats in Queensland. And I think that there's an opportunity for us in Queensland, which is partly about our policy agenda, partly about safe change, 
but partly about Scott Morrison. Yeah, well, it's interesting. And if we think about that, you know, some strategists are saying at the moment, for instance, the sort of picture with Morrison, this is an aggressive and crude simplification, so bear with me. (laughs) But but no, but there's something to it. Yeah. That uh, Morrison remains a plus for the government in the regions and some of the outer suburbs, but a minus for the government in the metros, in the major, in all the major cities in Australia at the moment. So is that your impression? And I'm glad you raised the outer suburbs because it really is critical. Like, you know, I've been in Tasmania recently in Bass and Braddon for more than a week and obviously the Liberals are having a real crack at Lions too, which is uh, has a big chunk of outer suburban Hobart in it, for example. What do you think about that? You said there's Morrison gives you an opportunity. What sort of an opportunity does he give you and is it a big enough one, I guess? I think Australians broadly, but Queenslanders especially, were prepared for a period to give Scott Morrison the benefit of the doubt. Uh, I think that changed really quickly and maybe it changed more quickly in other parts of Australia before it changed in Queensland, but it's changing in Queensland. Mm And the contrast between the two leaders is becoming better and better for us with each passing day because Anthony, you know, he shows up not just at election time, he takes responsibility, he doesn't try and play people off against each other, all of these things you can't say about Scott Morrison. You know, Scott Morrison's thing about, you know, some kind of flood support for New South Wales but not Queensland, Liberal seats, Labor seats, all that stuff. People are aware of that. And quite often I get asked by your colleagues and counterparts, you know, why is Queensland a little bit different in a political sense? I think another thing that people don't really focus on enough is they value authenticity over almost anything else. You know, Premier Palaszczuk is an authentic leader. Um, Anthony Albanese is an authentic leader. Scott Morrison, they may have seen him that way at some point in the past. They're not seeing him uh, like that as much anymore. And so I think that will be a big part of the story. But also, you know, all of our policies in one way or another, you know, are more attentive to the industrial base and the big employers and the workforce of Queensland than it's probably been for a really long time. Mm. And I think that's part of it too. We shouldn't we shouldn't underestimate the relationship between our policy agenda and having opportunities in Queensland as well. That's true, but you've got to yeah, you do have to get your message up. And that's another bit of feedback that we get around the country is that it's not like 2019. Everywhere we went in the country in 2019, people would cross the road to tell you that they really didn't like Bill Shorten. It was quite a thing. That is not happening now. Certainly in our pre-election field trips and my office has done several. People aren't crossing the road to tell us, oh, that Anthony Albanese, I really don't like him at all. But people are telling us around the country, I don't hear enough of him. I don't really know what the Labor offering is. You know, I'm not saying this in a jacuse sense because it's been a big three years, right? But still, in your um, speech at the National Press Club today, you borrowed a Kevinism. <laughs> this <laughs> reckless spending must stop. Yeah. You had your own locution. Yeah. But that just reminds, right, that Kevin Rudd in 2007 had ads out six months before the election campaign, in essence, telling the country who he was through his, you know, obviously his own construction of who he was. That hasn't happened with you guys. So have you been present enough, do you think? I think collectively uh, we can do more. You know, collectively. I don't believe in challenges that only exist for leaders. I think we all, you know, particularly in the Labor Party, but more broadly, 
you know, if things are not as we want them to be, we should take collective responsibility. If things are going well, we should take collective credit. And I think this is one of those areas where the pandemic's made it almost impossible to punch through. Anthony's punched through better than any other opposition leader in the country, but mm. it is more mm. difficult. I think that's self-evident. Uh, it has been more difficult. Um, but the more that they see of Anthony, the more they want to trust him, the more authentic they think he is, the more prepared they are to vote for him. And, and it would be worse if it was the other way around. Sure, sure. Um, sure. So I'm, I'm not as troubled about that. Um, I think that the more people get to know Anthony, the more they're willing to support him, the more they get to know the Prime Minister, the less willing they are to support him. And you'd rather that way than the other way around. Mm, okay. Let's just do a couple of things um, because in the event Labor wins this election, you may be in the Treasury portfolio before terribly much longer. Let's start with aged care if we can. Obviously, because of the the demographic profile of the country, uh, because this system has been significantly underfunded for a long period of time, we have workforce issues across the economy, but particularly in aged care. Mm. Uh, This is all big bucks. Now, Anthony Albanese used his own budget speech and reply to unveil elements of your uh, aged care policy, including that Labor would support pay increases for mm-hmm. workers. <laughs> How on earth does this get paid for, Jim, given Labor is also falling over itself at the moment to tell people we're not proposing big revenue measures like we did in 2019. You're slightly careful in what you say about tax, but you are certainly trying to convey the impression no hidden taxes. How can people trust that Labor can pay for a better aged care system, given that you're in a very, very, very tight box here. Yeah, I mean we don't we don't commit spending if we don't think it's absolutely necessary and responsible to do so. Uh, and in the context of the budget that was just handed down, the two and a half billion that we've allocated to aged care is not a large amount in the context of the rest of it, right? So you know I think we need to end this double standard on spending that says the government on a Tuesday night can spend thirty nine billion without offsetting it. Mm-hmm. But Anthony Albanese can't allocate two and a half billion on the Thursday night in arguably the area of most pressing need, Mm. right? And even if you want to think about it another way, that $2.5 less than half what the government's just waited on submarines that will never be built. Mm. You know, a tiny fraction of the JobKeeper money that went to businesses that were profitable and didn't need it. So let's have a proper conversation about our spending priorities. Mm. Mm. I think aged care is perhaps the best example of where the government says, oh, no, no, that would be irresponsible to spend in that area, but they think it's responsible to spray tens of billions around on all kinds of rorts and waste Mm. and Mm. all the rest of it. So the old saying, you know, we can't afford not to, I think that applies here too, but $2.5 billion is relatively modest. Now, you raised the issue around the Fair Work Commission and the the Mm. wages. Yeah. Um, And I want to make a broader point about that. But on the specific, it's not possible to cost a decision that hasn't been made, partly because you don't know over what time frame the Fair Work Commission will make it. Yeah. The Prime Minister himself has said that they would fund it if the Fair Work Commission made a decision. So both parties are in the same boat. Uh, on on that. The difference is we're enthusiastic about a pay rise for these works, the government's not. More broadly, we think about this uh, investment in aged care rightly as a thing about doing the right thing by older people and the people who look after them, making sure they've got decent care, decent food, decent wages, right? That is the right way to look at it. But the care economy in this country is the big opportunity for Australia. Millions of people will be working in this sector 
you know, we're talking about something that where we have a massive national advantage is we care about each other. And this is going to pay an economic dividend. So it's an investment in the economy as well. And if you see the $2.5 billion in light of the waste of the government's been uh, putting in the budget, the economic dividend, and most importantly, what it means for older people and the and the workers who care for them. I don't think it's a big amount of money. No, no, all of that's true. And, and you're right to point out that there can be a double standard in the way these things are measured. That's a, that's a reasonable point. But it's, it's not so much that I'm nitpicking on where's your offsets, right? Because no one's got offsets at the moment. The fiscal rules are completely out the window, right? But I'm sort of trying to make a broader point. You and I have discussed on the show in the past, we've sort of been in this period where basically we've had uh, low interest rates and growth can take care of reducing debt because, you know, if the economy grows faster, et cetera, right? We've had that whole conversation. Yeah. But the environment has turned and now the risks are on the downside in relation to that. Obviously, inflation is back. Mm-hmm. Whomever wins the election... You or them, no one is in the we can just borrow to fund recurrent spending with no downside risk place anymore. So again, like obviously the Aged Care Royal Commission recommended a levy, for example. You could increase the Medicare levy or or whatever else. Someone's still got to pay for it. Yeah. No, I understand that. I I think, you know, I've I've spoken at the press club and elsewhere about, you know, there is room in the budget to reprioritise. You know, there's a lot of waste, there's a lot of rorting. We want to deal with that and use that money for more productive purposes. We've said that we'll look at multinational taxes, how multinationals pay tax here in Australia where they make their profits. You know, there are a range of ways to improve the budget. But I think the first step you know, certainly the, the task of a first Labor budget, if we're successful, and I've said we'll hand down a proper budget this year if we win the election, if, you know, the big task there will be to go through line by line, make sure we're getting maximum bang for buck. That's before, you know, any of these other kinds of considerations. We're, we're not up for a levy. We've said that a few times now, uh, but we are up for trying to work out where can we take a dollar that is being wasted on an unproductive purpose and invest it instead in the care economy or looking after older people I think that's a big job. I think it gets kind of lightly dismissed in the building because it, you know, people want some big controversial change. Um, but I, I feel like sitting down with Katie Gallagher, uh, the shadow finance minister, and going through line by line working out where could that dollar be better spent. I actually think that's a substantial task. Hmm. It is. It is. Another one in the vein of some tricky things on your desk in the event that you win. A few tricky things on the oh, desk. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we could do about three hours on the, on the tricky things on your desk. Um, but one that's... That's why I don't sleep anymore. Well, sure, sure. Yeah, well, yeah, it's good training for what may occur afterwards. Um, I want to ask you about AUKUS just from a fiscal point of view. Obviously, and you referenced it a minute ago, there's the break fees associated with the French contract, which, you know, billions, I don't know. At least five and a half. They're fessed up to five and a half, which makes everyone think it's much more than that. There you go, right? So there's that. We are actually in a universe where we're contemplating, based on what people are saying, building nuclear-powered submarines in Australia with no domestic nuclear industry. How does that happen? Next, obviously this is, the government says it's an important partnership, uh, reflecting darkening strategic times. Look, I've got no argument with all of that. But the whole thing really makes no sense from the, from a practical implementation point of view. For example, we've got this process, right, 18 months or whatever it is to determine whether or not we, we are going to proceed with what's been presented to the public. There is every prospect that that 
assessment could determine it's completely fiscally irresponsible to do this, that there are significant practical impediments to actually doing it. In the event that happens, is there any universe where a Labor government says, sorry, guys, just can't do that for no other reason other than it's not fiscally responsible and it's not in the national interest? Yeah. I think the best way to think about this is that the level of investment is not contested. Commitment to substantial defence spending is not contested. That is bipartisan. What is contested is the government's competence to deliver on agreements and on spending. And the submarine debacle is just one example of billions of dollars in taxpayers' money being wasted on submarines that won't ever be built. And so depending on what we inherit, I think your listeners could expect the same level of investment but ideally more competently invested. But, but are you saying that come what may, we are going to construct nuclear-powered submarines in Australia? Well, we'll honour the deal. You know, we'll honour the deal with the Americans and with the Brits. You know, we, we signed up to it. And, and by the way, as I move around the business community and the national security community, there's a, a lot of appreciation for the efforts that we've made to try and be bipartisan about national security, despite you know, Dutton and others trying to create these artificial differences. There's no difference on the level of investment. There is a difference in terms of the level of competence. It's hard for me to preempt the advice that we would get on the National Security Committee. You know, who knows what that advice looks like? We have our own views, but we would honour the deal. Uh, we'd invest like the government in terms of quantity. We'd try and get more quality out of it. How do you feel about being a treasurer potentially who has to reduce or reverse a cut in the fuel excise? Well, I think that's the reality of the legislation. You know, I think people, they understand now it'll be a different story if they don't understand in September. But I, I think people understand that the government has put in place a six-month temporary cut to fuel excise. I've tried to be really upfront with people and say, you know, it's hard to imagine a government of either persuasion, including a government, a Labor government, being able to afford to continue that indefinitely. I think that's just real talk. Mm. And, you know, we'll see what the conditions are. You know, obviously we'll play the cards we're dealt and all the rest of it. Our whole fiscal economic strategy will be based on the economic conditions of the time and the opportunities of the future. But I think it's just self-evident that all of this cash that's been spent on taking a problem from one side of the election and putting it on the other side of the election uh, will end at some point. We have to be responsible about every dollar. Uh, and so I've been upfront about that. Yeah, but it's, look, I'd appreciate that that's probably all you can say in the circumstances. Neither one of us can project ourselves forward to September. And, yeah. but <laughs> you've been around politics long <laughs> enough to know yeah. that it's pretty easy to give people something and it's really bloody difficult yeah. to take it away from them. <laughs> we, so We had a moment out in the hallway during last week where you're, <laughs> you know, for your listeners' benefit, you know, you come out of an interview and you're walking along the press gallery hallway and you'll get stopped again, cameras and microphones. And there was a big gathering there and they said to me, do you think it will be hard for the petrol excise thing to end? And I said, oh, what a thought so. And there was this, <laughs> there was this pause afterwards because they're not, people aren't used to that, right? And Forgive a little what will seem like a diversion, but will make perfect sense to you. Yeah. A light bulb moment for me on this was actually when the government ministers read out the wrong speeches, right, that said oh. that there was going to be a cut to the cost of medicines. Yes. After the budget had been handed down, two ministers, one in the Senate, one in the House of Reps, gave speeches where they read out a speech that said, 
we've decreased the cost of medicine by a certain amount. The reality was that wasn't in the budget. It had been taken out. The speech drafts were obviously a couple of weeks old and so it didn't happen, right? Bear with me. And so they obviously read the wrong speech out. Yeah. They tried to change the hansard. They've got a hard time in estimates about it, as you know, and, and many of your listeners would know. And Josh Frydenberg goes on the Insiders program with David Spears and David asks him about this and Josh pretends that it was all consistent, right? <laughs> and everyone knows, right? There was just a, there was a stuff, stuff up. up. They read the wrong speeches. It was embarrassing, yeah. right? And for me, the idea that the treasurer on the couch there can't say we, there was a mistake made yeah, probably wasn't even his mistake. If There was a mistake made, right? And so I feel a bit that way when it comes to fuel or something else, right? It was, it was a bit of a thing for me to kind of think, can we just sometimes... <laughs> just tell it how it is. Sometimes <laughs> tell it like it is. It's like, it's like today, right? I sent out a tweet today. It had the fact the wrong way around. Yeah. Government's made this huge deal out of it, right? If the worst thing they can say about a press club speech and a question and answer session that goes for an hour and a quarter is that we sent the draft tweet out rather than the final tweet, I'm okay with that. And I can say to your listeners, I sent the wrong tweet out. Should have sent this other one out, right? And Josh should be able to say, we gave the wrong speech. We should be able to say it's going to be hard to afford to do petrol excise or something else. You know what I mean? Oh, no, no. I, I Look, I, <laughs> I applaud the plain speaking. And and I think sometimes, you know, politicians are so risk-averse that they end up discounting the sensibility of people, that people just couldn't actually bear reality if it was placed in front of them. Yeah. And I think a lot of people obviously can bear reality and, in fact, crave it. Yeah. But I still struggle to imagine a universe. <laughs> no, no, I mean, seriously, whether yeah. it's you... Yeah. Whether it's Frydenberg, whomever it is, right, in September where, where you know, God forbid this conflict in Ukraine could still be causing yeah. shocks around the world and people skip along and just reverse an excise cut. Forgive me, but I just I, I do have trouble absorbing how that will actually happen in the real world. Yeah. It'll be a politically difficult period for whoever's in office. I, I accept that. Yeah. I, I, I'm just, I don't want to. I'm just making the broader point. Like we should be able to say that. No, no, no. I know, and, and I, I'm like, not. I'm not discounting your broader point. Yeah. You're exactly right. I'm, yeah. in fact, agreeing with your broader point. But I just think, God Almighty, that's going to be bad. Um, one more, uh, just uh, on sort of broad Treasury portfolio matters. You're sort of limbering up as you would to say, uh, just in the sort of environment that we've been talking about, referencing in this in this bit of the conversation. Mm. Uh, you know, that the government will have secret cuts after the election, right? Yeah. Because, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, you're obviously then bringing up for that conversation. But the same, of course, could be said about yourselves because, you know, getting back to that point where we've sort of got a, and plain speaking, referencing your plain speaking, right? Obviously, there's been sort of debt and debt hysteria in the country that's not been helpful to the national interest or to sanity or to, you know, <laughs> policy directions or, yeah. you know, development or whatever. Yeah. So that point's granted. But also the point has to be made that it isn't a money tree. The environment yeah. has changed. So it's all very well to say the government's got secret cuts after the election. Does Labor have secret cuts after the election? Well, we've been really upfront again and said if we find opportunities to trim the budget, we'll do it. And we've identified some areas, you know, um, Commonwealth spending on labour hire and contractors and consultants. We've said multinational taxes, you know, where we found 
a way to get better value for money or to begin to repair the budget so that we can invest in other priorities, we've said so. And, you know, one of the interesting things I've, I've found, and I know Katie Gallagher's found this too, is we get asked all the time, because I said, if we win, I'm going to hand down a budget this year, people will say, oh, for that budget, are you going to go through every line of spending line by line? And my answer is I'm going to do that every budget. Mm. I'm going to do that every time. That's my commitment, right? Mm. And the government, because they're more likely to look for savings in areas like pensions they've done in the last nine years, Medicare they've done in the last nine years, yeah, they are not being upfront about that. There's $3 billion of secret cuts in the budget, described as a decision taken but not announced, $3 billion in cuts, and they won't say what that is. What we've said upfront, here's how we're looking for cuts. If we find more, if we find other ways to trim spending in discretionary funds or something else, we're going to do that because that money would be better spent, aged care, childcare, skills, cleaner and cheaper energy, those sorts of things. And the flip side just of that is uh, I presume you've got expenditure commitments to come over the campaign. For instance, we've seen not an awful lot on health. Uh, The premiers have been running a campaign on hospital funding. There's bits and pieces on education, but nothing huge there. What can people expect over the next couple of weeks? Obviously, you know, without subjecting you to being flogged for uh, confidences, obviously, what's what's the general direction? Well, I I do think people should expect it to be a relatively modest offering by historical standards because uh, we do have that trillion dollars in debt that we inherit and all these other important issues we've been discussing today, they are material. You know, you've got to work out you know, where can you be the most responsible in an area where you get the most bang for buck and in a world where you're not proposing big tax changes uh, to fund some of these things, you know, you, you, the onus is on you to be even more responsible. So obviously we'll have more policy to announce. Mm. Um, I'm quite proud of the policies that we're going to announce in this election campaign, but people shouldn't expect it to be a free-for-all. It's not going to be. It's going to be incredibly responsible and that's because you know, we would be inheriting factually the worst set of books ever taken in an election by any government in the history of the Commonwealth. And so that matters. Mm-hmm. Let's end because uh, we need to wrap because of time. Let's go back to Queensland because that's where we started, right? So, um, and you acknowledge that it's uh, it's going to be difficult for Labor there. Yeah. Uh, obviously, with the usual caveats, campaigns still to win, etc. right? Difficult for Labor. Yeah. Nice, easy question to end up on. Mm-hmm. If in the event you fall short at this election, and largely because of the uh, the margins in 2019 have made gains in Queensland really difficult, because yep. as you acknowledge, that pathway to victory is difficult. Does that suggest that people will only elect a government if there's a Queenslander at the head of it? Oh, no, I don't think so. You know, I don't think so. And... and I'm working my ass off to make uh, sure that that decision that you're dancing around is not necessary. You know, I, I, one of the things I'm most grateful to Anthony for is that the Treasury portfolio is held by a Queenslander. Uh, that means that we have, our home state has a bigger, more prominent voice in the economic decisions uh, taken at the national level. And I, th- I think that's really important. There is the Rudd experience, though. Yeah, and I tell you, I think about that Rudd campaign all of the time, you know, because I think in lots of ways that's the template, you know, and the template in the sense that, you know, there was a focus, there was a few things that they wanted to do differently, there was that sense of safe change, you know, Kevin Rudd campaigned beautifully and perfectly, 
And, you know, I think in lots of ways that is the model. Uh, and I think Anthony is capable of a campaign like we had in 2007, the last time we took uh, government from opposition. I think the, the building blocks are there, the lessons are there, the example has been set by Kevin, and I think that's broadly acknowledged. Um, but in terms of, of my role and the role of Queensland, if I've tried to do anything this term, it's tried to elevate Queensland, not just in political terms, but economic terms as well. Uh, the whole shadow cabinet has been through regional Queensland more times than I can ever remember any shadow cabinet or cabinet doing. So uh, the whole place takes Queensland really seriously. Uh, we do that for the right reasons and we're giving ourselves a chance there. Thanks for joining me. Thanks very much, Catherine. Thank you so much for listening. I really do appreciate it. Obviously, a new set of conditions are dawning and we'll be with you throughout the election campaign in a variety of formats in audio and I uh, look forward to catching up with you then. Thank you to Miles Martignoni, who's the EP of this show. See you soon. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. 